Hundreds of people have been killed by an explosion at a hospital in Gaza, according to the World Health Organization. The president of the Palestinian Authority has canceled a meeting with President Biden in the wake of the blast. Our story is coming up on this Monday, October 17th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. It's Tuesday the 17th. The latest from the Middle East coming up. Also ahead... I rise today to nominate the gentleman from Ohio, Jim Jordan, as Speaker of the People's House. But so far, no luck for the gentleman from Ohio as Jordan falls short of the votes he needs to become Speaker. And same-sex marriage at issue in India. These stories and much more ahead. It's 58 degrees in Boston under cloudy skies at 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Chaos in the aftermath of a deadly explosion at a hospital in Gaza. The Associated Press cites Palestinian health officials in reporting hundreds of people were killed. Still, no confirmation on what caused the explosion, but Israel's been carrying out airstrikes on Gaza since the Hamas militant attacks against Israel 10 days ago. The West Bank's Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has called off his meeting tomorrow with President Biden, according to a Palestinian official speaking with NPR, as well as multiple other reports. Following today's carnage, Abbas is calling for three days of mourning. NPR's Tamara Keith reports President Biden is still expected to meet with leaders of Israel, Jordan and Egypt as pressure builds for an international humanitarian response in Gaza. Getting humanitarian aid in without aiding Hamas and getting civilians out without allowing members of Hamas to slip in to Egypt is is a significant challenge. Biden's team has been working on it for days. They've made some progress, but uh, that humanitarian corridor still isn't open. And there's a risk of Biden going there, asking for it, working on it, and yeah. and not bringing back that deliverable. That's NPR's Tamara Keith. New U.S. assistance for Israel and other top priorities are on hold on Capitol Hill because the U.S. House has yet to elect a speaker. NPR Susan Davis says Republican nominee Jim Jordan was unable to garner enough votes in the first ballot on the House floor today. 20 Republicans voted for someone other than Jordan on the House floor. With a narrow Republican majority, he can only lose four Republican votes and still win the gavel. All Democrats voted for their leader, Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Just over half of Jordan's opponents are lawmakers who sit on either the Appropriations or Armed Services Committees. Jordan's record of opposition to spending bills and skepticism of military aid has been cause for concern as Congress works to avoid a shutdown and pass additional aid to Ukraine. Jordan's supporters were prepared for multiple rounds of balloting. Back in January, it took Kevin McCarthy 15 rounds to become Speaker. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. A new NPR PBS News Aramaris poll finds the presence of third party candidates such as Robert F. Kennedy Jr. could be a major wild card in the presidential election. Here's NPR's Domenico Montanero. The poll found President Biden leading former President Trump overall by three percentage points, 49 to 46. But that was within the almost four point margin of error. When RFK Jr., who's running as an independent, was introduced as an option, Biden's lead expanded to seven points. Other surveys have found RFK Jr. pulling slightly more from Biden. Kennedy is making strategists in both parties nervous and for good reason. He's a former Democrat with a famous last name and he's played on the kinds of conspiracy theories, especially especially related to vaccines that have been popular on the political right. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. From Washington, this 
is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll is defending the administration's handling of the state's housing crisis. Governor Maura Healy warned yesterday that emergency shelter space could run out by the end of the month. Adam Frenier has more. Massachusetts has a long-standing right to shelter law, but Healy indicated her administration may not be able to abide by it. Some advocates are concerned creating a waiting list for shelter space could be problematic and does not fulfill the state's legal obligations. During a visit to Springfield, Driscoll was asked about the situation. We're not eradicating the right to shelter law. We're going to continue to do everything we can. The reality is though, we are running out of space. We are running out of resources. And we're going to continue to try and serve families as well as we can, consistent with our Massachusetts values. A supplemental budget bill filed by Healy calls for a quarter billion dollars to help deal with the shelter crisis. It's pending in the legislature. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. State police are pushing for steeper penalties for drivers who don't move over a lane for emergency vehicles that are stopped in the road. A proposed change in the state's move-over law would increase fines to $250. It would also allow for criminal charges if a first responder is injured by a driver. Patrick McNamara heads the State Police Association of Massachusetts. We're looking for a reasonable increase to the penalty and charge of the move-over law. Right now, it's a $100 citation. It doesn't do anything. And then what we're asking for is if you seriously hurt, if you injure one of our first responders because you failed to move over, that we're able to criminally charge on our misdemeanor. McNamara says first responders and their vehicles are regularly hit while performing traffic duties on roadways. Three houses of worship are hosting an interfaith prayer vigil tonight in Brookline. They include Congregation uh, Hilleth of Israel, St. John Missionary Baptist Church, and Bethel AME Church. The vigil is to mourn the lives lost and pray for Israelis held in captivity. It starts at 7.30 tonight at Congregation Kehilleth in Kehilleth, Israel. In the forecast, 56 degrees, kind of grim out there right now. Showers off and on. Chilly tonight, about 47, partly cloudy skies. And for tomorrow, generally sunny. Could have some random showers in the middle of the day. Highs near 64. The time is 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Paramount Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, and directed by Martin Scorsese. Only in theaters, October 20th, rated R. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Tel Aviv, Israel. We begin this hour with reports of a catastrophic explosion at a Gaza hospital that threatens to be a major turning point in the Hamas-Israel war. The World Health Organization says many hundreds of people were killed in the explosion. The Israeli army says it was misfire from another Palestinian militant group in Gaza. It would be one of the deadliest single days in all five wars Hamas and Israel have fought in the last couple decades. President Biden is heading into this storm. He'll be here in Tel Aviv tomorrow. NPR's Daniel Estrin is sitting here with me now in Tel Aviv. And Daniel, update us on what happened at this hospital in Gaza. It took place um, on the Al-Ahli Hospital. This is a hospital in Gaza City. It's a Christian-affiliated hospital, Ari. It's where eyewitnesses told us that thousands of Palestinians have been sheltering uh, because hospitals have uh, long been considered off-limits for military targets in Gaza. People feel safe uh, sheltering there. But videos on social media uh, are showing a massive wall of fire rising up, uh, bodies strewn over the grass of the hospital grounds. An eyewitness spoke to Al Jazeera and said men, women, children were among 
among the victims. Now, the Israeli military is saying that according to its intelligence sources, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group, that's a, it's another militant group, it's, it's a slightly smaller than Hamas, uh, operates in Gaza. They're saying that that group misfired a rocket barrage as it was firing toward Israel and, and that it hit the hospital. Uh, we do know from past wars there have been Palestinian rockets that have fallen short inside Gaza. Uh, but, you know, this very same hospital said it was struck by Israeli rocket fire just a few days ago. And even before this massive explosion at the hospital, bombings have been going on all day. I know you've been reporting on this with our colleagues in Gaza who are working under extreme conditions. Tell us about what you two have been discussing today. Yeah, and I've been speaking with our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, all day, and he told me what he saw in very graphic detail. His morning began at 4.30 a.m. He woke up in southern Gaza to the sound of an Israeli airstrike that reportedly killed a family. Uh, we woke up to the, uh, to the explosion, and after that, we couldn't uh, get back to sleep. At 8.30 a.m., Baba and his family fled the home they'd been sheltering in because a nearby high-rise got an Israeli military warning to escape ahead of a bombing. His family went to go stay with relatives, and he went out to report. We reached the first family house that got bombed. We were informed that at least seven people died here. Everything in the house was flattened to the ground. A lot of the neighbors were just like still under the shot. He says there is no help to dig out the rubble. He said the family must have kept chickens because there were a lot of feathers in the rubble. And, and he smelled burnt blood. Smelled. Just burned blood. He visited a second bombed house and then a third. And he saw a woman in the street screaming, I need a ride to the hospital. She had an injured son there. So he drove her to the hospital. Her name is Um Ali Abu Jazar. And she said, we were sitting at home normally, cooking. Suddenly the window broke on my head in an airstrike. My daughter, I found her face all bloodied. Under her room. All the kids were playing there. All the kids. They're all under the rubble. We don't know who's come out alive, who's come out dead, who is in body parts. Their blood is all black in every spot. The smell of death is everywhere. The smell of death is everywhere. So he arrives at the hospital and he finds another woman whose father was killed in one of those bombings. And he filmed her. You see her crouched on the floor. Her hand is on her father's body. And then suddenly... A huge explosion. An explosion. All of the hospital started to scream together, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. God is greatest, God is greatest. So he gets into the car to see what happened, and he's driving behind the ambulances. A huge dust. It's like a cloud of dust all over two blocks. We were driving without understanding where we're going. The only thing indicating to us where to go is the red color of the ambulance siren. We were following him. He drove guided by the red sirens. The first thing I saw, a man is driving and another man behind him, holding two girls. And I swear, they were beheaded, without a head. I get closer to find a woman with a full filling dust and sand clothing that you cannot even see her. She was like a ghost with all gray dust, like covering her, her face, her skin, everything. 
screaming in the, in the street. They killed the children. They killed the children. He says he saw the bodies of children being carried out. He saw a baby girl crushed. There is nothing of her bone structure totally crushed. Gaza health officials are saying that more than 100 people were killed in just those few bombings. And they took place in southern Gaza, which is the area that Israel ordered Palestinians to flee to for their own safety. There was one moment today when Anas Baba was in the field and rescue workers called him over to try to help them lift a large concrete block. We just helped each other. Maybe the one under the rubble is still alive and we can save him. But underneath was just more rubble. Daniel is still here with us in Tel Aviv with that powerful reporting uh, about strikes in southern Gaza. And of course, we're looking at this explosion at this hospital in northern Gaza. I said at the beginning that this explosion at the hospital tonight could be a turning point in the war. Daniel, how so? Well, it's already disrupting President Biden's visit tomorrow. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has announced that he's going to boycott that meeting with Biden in protest of this explosion at the hospital. Uh, We're already seeing protests in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. There are reports of protests in Jordan near the Israeli embassy. Uh, Israel is calling on its own citizens to immediately leave Turkey due to threats. And then today we saw more cross-border fire between Lebanon and Israel. Uh, Israeli civilians have evacuated their homes on the border. Of course, all of this as Israelis are still identifying their dead, mourning, grieving, uh, burying their dead from the initial Hamas attacks. And so, Ari, uh, this is confirming the the fears that U.S. and Israeli officials have had all throughout this war, that this Hamas-Israel conflict could expand into a wider regional war. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin with me here in Tel Aviv, Israel, bringing us reporting from our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba. Daniel, thank you so much. You're welcome, Ari. Two weeks ago, the House voted to oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Well, today, they tried to vote to replace him with Ohio Republican Jim Jordan, but... No person having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. That's right. After 20 Republicans voted for someone else, the House is in recess. And again, the chamber is frozen. Without a speaker, the House can't vote on aid to Israel or on anything else. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh was in the chamber and joins us now from the Capitol. Hi, Deirdre. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so are we seeing the same movie again? I mean, we saw Republicans in January take, what, 15 ballots to elect McCarthy as speaker? Is that Jordan's strategy to keep voting and voting and voting until he wins? I mean, Republicans really don't want to replay that movie. Uh, They certainly hope it doesn't take 15 rounds. But Jordan's spokesman told me they do expect to have another round today and said, quote, the House needs a speaker as soon as possible. Jordan's allies did anticipate he would lose on the first ballot and said they figured it could take multiple rounds, but he has a lot of ground to make up. Right now, there are 220 Republicans here and voting, so Jordan can really only lose three, and he lost 20 on that first ballot. Democrats will all united and voted for their leader, Hakeem Jeffries, but even Republicans who backed Jordan admitted that number was higher than they expected. 
Okay, so who were the 20 Republicans voting against Jordan? And do you think he can convince them to change their votes? I mean, he's working on that right now. He's trying to meet one-on-one with some of these. But the 20 were a mix of members who serve on the House Appropriations Committee, which handles spending bills, the House Armed Services Committee, who handles military issues. A lot of those members are concerned about Jim Jordan's record. I mean, he has opposed spending bills and been involved in standoffs that resulted in government shutdowns. He opposes more aid for Ukraine. Florida Republican Mario Diaz-Balart voted for Steve Scalise and told reporters after the vote he's still in the same place. He's a longtime member of the Appropriations Committee, and he was I spotted him on the floor huddling with some of his colleagues, clearly not supportive of, of Jordan. I mean, there's some others that, who are mad about the way that McCarthy was ousted and some voted for him. There was one Michigan Republican, John James, who voted for someone else. He told me he's worried about the needs of his district, things like a military base, infrastructure projects. But he said he was talking to Jordan. He said, we can work it out. Huh. Okay. well, are there any alternatives to Jordan right now? No. I mean, none of the people who actually got votes on the floor are even running for speaker. Many House Republicans tell me the same thing. They don't know anyone who can get 217 votes right now to get the gavel. Well, that's really unfortunate because one month from today, the federal government runs out of money. It could shut down. There's also a war in Israel. Can Congress address these issues without a speaker? No, Congress is paralyzed. I mean, lawmakers who support Jordan and people who oppose to him all agree this has gone on too long, two weeks. Constituents back home keep telling them the same thing. We just want the House to function. Over in the Senate today, they're talking about moving their own spending bills. They want to tie together aid to Ukraine and Israel. The White House is expected to send up a new request for emergency assistance, probably both for Ukraine and Israel. But even if they can move those bills in the Senate, and some of them have bipartisan support, none of these things can go anywhere until a House speaker is elected. That is NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Thank you so much, Deirdre. Thanks, Elsa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, a minor gain for the Dow today, up just a small fraction of a percent. S&P closed little changed. The Nasdaq lost a quarter of a percent. More business and the forecast are coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Boston-based biopharma company Monterosa Therapeutics received $50 million to advance cancer research. A partner company from Switzerland, Roche, is behind the investment. The funds will go toward developing new drugs for cancer and neurological diseases. Monterosa is already working on potential treatments for three types of cancer, as well as blood diseases and immunological uh, disorders. Roche plans on investing up to $2 billion in the partnership. And the Cambridge Community Foundation is investing more than $1 million in the city's emergency food system. The funds will go to nonprofits across the city, including Daily Table and Food for Free. As of two years ago, about one of every eight Cambridge residents faced food insecurity. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. 
accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit BlueCrossMA.com go. Got another damp afternoon, isolated showers, some clearing overnight tonight in the mid to upper 40s. Tomorrow should be about 60 degrees, some sunshine, maybe an afternoon shower. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Russia's parliament voted today to revoke ratification of an international treaty banning nuclear testing. It's the latest step by Russia to walk back its commitments on nuclear weapons. And it has some experts worry that Russia may soon resume nuclear testing, something it hasn't done so far this century. Here with more is NPR science and security correspondent Jeff Brumfield. Hi, Jeff. Hi there. Tell us more about what Russia did today and why. Yeah, this treaty is known as the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. It prohibits tests of all nuclear weapons. Now, the treaty's not yet enforced, but a lot of countries have signed on, and Russia's among them. It was ratified by the Duma way back in 2000. And now, as you said, they're walking it back. They voted unanimously to de-ratify the treaty today. Russian officials say this is about fairness. The U.S. and China have signed the treaty, but they haven't ratified it. Russia says they want their country to be on an equal footing with America. But some experts think there might be some other motivations going on right. here. And what kind of motivations? Why why vote to de-ratify? Yeah. Well, Russia has been pulling back from its nuclear commitments. Uh, earlier this year, they announced they no longer participated in a major treaty with the United States designed to limit the number of nuclear weapons that are deployed. I spoke to Jeffrey Lewis at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, and he thinks this is actually really about the war in Ukraine. The way the Russians see it is that by withdrawing from these agreements, they're raising the nuclear temperature. And the hope here is that the West will think twice about getting involved in Ukraine with all this nuclear saber rattling, but it doesn't really seem to be working. I mean, just today, Ukraine used advanced American missiles as part of an attack on Russian airfields. So, Jeff, is there any indication that Russia might actually test a nuclear weapon? You know, Russia's main nuclear test site is on a remote Arctic archipelago, and most of the years it's shrouded in clouds and darkness. But Lewis recently managed to get some commercial satellite imagery, and he says there's actually a lot going on. It is so busy. We are seeing so much construction. Very large buildings, actually. We don't know what those are for. They could just be better living conditions. They could be new offices. They could be laboratory space. We are also seeing work at nuclear test tunnels all over the site. All this activity doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a nuclear test. In fact, the nuclear powers all use their old test sites for non-nuclear testing, basically testing parts of nuclear weapons that aren't the nuclear stuff. Russia says officially it isn't going to test, but then earlier this month, President 
Vladimir Putin said that specialists are pressing him to conduct a nuclear test. And he hasn't decided whether to do it. So there's mixed messaging. And if Russia did test a nuclear weapon, how would that play out globally? You know, the only nation that's tested a nuclear weapon in the 21st century is North Korea, and they're a real pariah state. Now, Russia's not exactly popular, but they are a major nuclear power. If they go ahead and test, China might go next. They've been modernizing their nuclear arsenal. Um, and the U.S. is also prepared to return to testing as well, though they say at the moment there's no need to do that. Uh, the country can maintain its nuclear stockpile without any tests. I think the bottom line is if this testing moratorium breaks down, it could pretty rapidly see a return to nuclear tests all over the world, and that could lead to a new arms race. That's NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Jen, thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Jews in America live thousands of miles from the Hamas terrorist attacks, but fears for their safety here in the U.S. are very real. Think of the Pittsburgh synagogue murders back in 2018 or the taking of hostages at a Texas synagogue just last year. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose reports on balancing security efforts with a desire to remain welcoming and hopeful. At Adat Ariel in suburban Los Angeles, senior rabbi Brian Schuldenfry stands in his synagogue's parking lot gesturing to the more visible safety measures. And there's this large iron gate next to a security booth. And uh, there's a big blue and white banner that says Bruchim Habayim, which means welcome in Hebrew. But before you come in, please make sure to check in with security. That's the reality of our lives a reality that weighs heavy on the hearts of the 600 families who attend services and send their kids to school here. On Friday, Shulden Fry noticed one mother in particular walking through this parking lot. She brought her kid to school and she was scared and her hand was shaking and, you know, I just grasped it. We would not be welcoming to her if we didn't have security. To keep the region's 500 synagogues both safe and welcoming, the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles launched its community security initiative over a decade ago. I probably haven't had a good night's sleep since uh, starting on the 6th. Larry Mead heads the initiative. It includes a 24-7 intelligence and threat analysis unit, active shooter trainings, and security consultations at synagogues, schools, and other Jewish institutions. Mead's in regular contact with the LAPD, the LA Sheriff, the FBI, and the many other regional Jewish federations across the country. It's not in a vacuum here in Los Angeles. It's worldwide and we have to talk to each other. So it's about information sharing. If we're not sharing information, we don't know what's going on. While there are no current credible threats, law enforcement in the region says they've increased patrols in neighborhoods with large Jewish and Muslim populations. That's information Cynthia Barzilai takes seriously as executive director of Beth Shear Shalom in Santa Monica, a congregation and school that serves about 200 families. We are a smaller community, so we don't have a full-time security guard, but we've taken measures. We have new updated cameras and monitors and intercom systems. We have blast-proof windows. It's hard to express how to be a Jew, even in 2023, is to be scared to be too public. Alex Kress is Beth Shir Shalom's rabbi. He says it's an excruciating time for his congregation, 
for him and for Jews around the world. But he finds hope in a recent Torah portion, the creation story, from the opening verses of Genesis. What is God creating from this term tohu vavohu, this void, this darkness, this chaos? And the first creation is light. And what does God say? That the light is good. Even in these moments of horrible depths of depravity and darkness, the light is good, and we have to find the light. Rabbi Kress reminds his congregation there is still joy in life, still the peace of Sabbath, despite sorrow, despite fear, despite the armed guard at the synagogue door. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 25 minutes, a 22-year-old singer who's bringing new life to the songs of enslaved black people in America. In the forecast, another damp afternoon, isolated showers. Tonight, partly cloudy skies, temperatures in the mid to upper 40s for a low. Tomorrow could make it to the mid-60s with some sunshine, maybe an early afternoon shower. Then we should have mostly sunny skies on Thursday with highs back in the mid-60s. Only 56 degrees now in Boston. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. Innuendo, covering Metro Boston windows for over 30 years with shades, blinds, draperies, and more. Innuendo's design team in Natick and Innuendo.com. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at VRTX.com. I'm Scott Tong. President Biden travels to Tel Aviv and Jordan to show support for Israel and to meet with both Israeli and Arab leaders in the region. Meanwhile, Russian President Putin is in Beijing, meeting with Chinese leader Xi as the war in Ukraine goes on. We will have the latest next time in Here and Now. Listening in tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, it feels a lot like deja vu all over again as Republicans try to come up with enough votes for a new House Speaker to take the gavel. In the latest vote, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan failed to get the required number of votes after 20 Republicans picked someone other than Jordan for Speaker, including Representative Ken Buck. It is not personal. I have a lot of respect for Jim, and and we both have sort of risen in the conservative movement and share many of the values of the conservative movement. Um, I I think that uh, what Jim Jordan needs to do is to stop talking about defunding the Department of Justice. 
About half of Jordan's opponents are lawmakers who sit on either the Appropriations or Armed Services Committees, Jordan's opposition to spending bills, as well as skepticism of military aid has been cause for concern. Until a speaker is chosen, the House remains in limbo, unable to pass any legislation to avoid a government shutdown next month or provide additional aid to Ukraine or Israel. Ukraine, meanwhile, launched a surprise attack on Russian forces today using powerful U.S. missiles that were secretly shipped. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports. In a video posted to social media, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky confirmed the military had used an army tactical missile system known by its acronym, which is pronounced Attackums. They performed very accurately, he said. Attackums have proven themselves. These tactical ballistic missiles have long-range capabilities and can strike deep into enemy territory. Ukraine's special forces said they targeted Russian airfields in the occupied south and east, destroying nine helicopters, an air defense launcher, and an ammunition warehouse. The Wall Street Journal first reported the use of the missiles, which Biden initially expressed reluctance to provide to avoid escalating the conflict. You're listening to NPR News. In Atlanta, <clears throat> a black man who was exonerated. Authorities say Cure became non-compliant with the unidentified deputy after being placed under arrest. Cure was convicted in 2003 of armed robbery outside Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and spent 16 years in prison before being exonerated with the help of the Innocence Project of Florida. Seth Miller is the group's executive director. I know from talking to many clients, their biggest fear is that on the other side of that door or at a traffic stop, they're going to be sent right back to where they were, where they worked so hard to get out of for something they didn't do. Miller says Cure had just recently received a cash settlement in August from the state of Florida for his wrongful conviction. For NPR News, I'm Benjamin Payne. A Las Vegas police officer convicted of a series of casino robberies almost two years ago has been sentenced to 12 years in prison. Caleb Rogers has been on unpaid suspension since his arrest. He apologized in court today before his sentencing. The 35-year-old was found guilty of stealing nearly $165,000 in three casino robberies near the Vegas Strip. That includes one in which he used a loaded police department handgun. He was convicted by a federal jury back in July. Rogers' attorney says they plan to appeal the conviction. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The leader of a local migrant support group says a recent meeting with Biden administration officials was productive. The attention from Washington comes as Governor Moore Healy says the state's shelter system will hit capacity by the end of the month. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. Jeffrey Thielman heads the International Institute of New England. He and other local leaders met with a team from the Department of Homeland Security last week. Thielman told WBUR's Radio Boston he's focused on helping migrants get work permits, and he was glad to hear the feds are making that a priority, too. They gave some specifics about how they've accelerated the program, and it's taking a shorter amount of time now to get uh, work authorization documents. So I, I felt good that they're on the problem and they're aware of it. Yesterday, Governor Healy said once the state family shelter system hits 7,500 households, Massachusetts will no longer guarantee shelter for eligible families. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. 
House Speaker Ron Mariano said today that he will seek re-election next year. The Quincy Democrat has served as Speaker since 2020. Another term would keep him in the seat through January of 2027. A Winthrop police officer will not be criminally charged for shooting and killing a 28-year-old man two years ago. The Suffolk County DA's office says the officer behaved lawfully and acted in self-defense. The shooting took place after 28-year-old Nathan Allen killed two black people on the street in June 2021. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden says his investigation showed that the officer's actions likely prevented more deaths. After the incident, investigators found several white supremacist writings from Allen. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, committed to strengthening democracy. Join a discussion on Supreme Court reform, October 25th, emkinstitute.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Partly cloudy, chilly tonight, about 47 for a low. Tomorrow, lots of sunshine. We could have some random showers in the middle of the day, though. Temperature's about 64. 56 degrees in Boston at 436. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to turn on multi-factor authentication. CISA.gov slash Secure Our World. And from National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. When President Biden arrives in Israel on Wednesday, he will send a message of U.S. solidarity with its key ally in the Middle East, Israel. He'll also be trying to caution Israel on the risks of a ground invasion of Gaza, the civilian casualties, the growing humanitarian crisis, and how a ground invasion could massively shift public opinion against Israel. All those risks were put into stark relief today after an explosion at a Gaza hospital killed hundreds of people. Immense challenges face President Biden now, as they have with every U.S. president engaging in diplomacy with Israel. And to talk about those challenges, we're joined now by Susan Glasser of The New Yorker. She's covered Washington and foreign affairs for many, many years and joins us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. So as you've been listening, Susan, to Biden speak publicly since the attacks by Hamas a week and a half ago, can you just talk about what has struck you about his words and his tone? Well, first of all, it is very clear that for President Biden, this has hit him in a very, very visceral way, in a very personal way. There is a kind of reflexive, uh, automatic, and, and deeply, I think, heartfelt sympathy for Israel that he has been expressing in unequivocal terms. And as a result of that, you've seen a lot of gratitude from many Israelis, including many who have been critical of Biden and critical of Democrats in recent years. And have you noticed any shift in recent days in terms of his tone and the words he's using to describe what's happening on the ground in Gaza? Well, one thing that's notable is I think this fits with President Biden's theory of international politics and his dealings with other uh, leaders, which is 
the bear hug approach, you might say, that he, he, he wants to keep Israel close in part to maintain his ability to offer inside that bear hug uh, uh, criticism, concerns, potential constraints. And right now for, for Biden and his administration, they are looking to press Israel to follow the, the laws of war, as Biden himself put it, to uh, do things like open up a possibility for humanitarian aid for mm-hmm. civilians in Gaza, open up humanitarian corridors for those who are fleeing at Israel's request from the northern part of Gaza. So what success they'll have is not yet clear, but I do think that's Biden's approach. Well, as we've mentioned, a lot of other U.S. presidents have had to deal with some form of escalation in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Are the challenges facing Biden now substantively different from what you've seen previous presidents face? Well, the fear that you hear articulated from those who closely watch the region is not only of the prospect of a a potentially escalating regional conflict, but that the U.S. could be drawn more directly into it than than ever before. Uh, And that scenario that is the reason for not one but two different U.S. aircraft carriers that have already been sent to the region. Mm -hmm. The fear is that if Israel is embroiled in a full-scale ground invasion of Gaza, essentially pinned down there, what happens if you then see the West Bank explode? What happens if in the north you have Hezbollah from Lebanon or Syria attacking Israel? That that's a scenario where you could even see uh, the United States drawn into the conflict in a more direct way. Right. Do you think the U.S. president has become less relevant when it comes to Israeli-Palestinian relations, at least during recent administrations? Well, I think that, you know, the failure of the great dream of so many American presidents, this idea that there was a viable two-state solution to be negotiated and that the U.S. president would become the broker of that, uh, you know, because that foundered and really is has sort of no longer even really flickering as a, as a dream of U.S. presidents, it, there was a sense that, you know, perhaps the U.S. was pulling back. Uh, from uh, even the business of Middle East peacemaking. And, you know, Biden, like his two predecessors, both Donald Trump and Barack Obama, essentially was very clear in saying as far as foreign policy goes, he was pivoting away from the Middle East Mm -hmm. and trying to pivot toward Asia. Uh, But, you know, there's famous... uh, comment from uh, a long ago British Prime Minister, uh, Harold Macmillan, asked about his foreign policy. He said, uh, events, dear boy, events. And uh, once again, events uh, are pulling the U.S. back in. Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker and longtime Washington correspondent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Today was a day that activists in India had been waiting for. The country's top court was going to rule on whether to legalize same-sex marriages, but it didn't happen. The five judges hearing the case ruled that only the Indian parliament could make that decision. So what happens next? NPR's Dia Hadid reports from Mumbai. In a judgment broadcast live, the justices said the court didn't have the authority to legalize same-sex marriage. But one of the justices, Sanjay Kishankol, made his feelings clear. Non-heterosexual unions and heterosexual unions marriages 
ought to be considered as two sides of the same coin. I believe this movement presents an opportunity of reckoning with this historical injustice. And the Chief Justice, D.Y. Chandrachaud, said same-sex relationships were part of India's history. Queerness is a natural phenomenon known to India since ancient times. It is not urban or elite. That appeared a rebuke of the Indian government solicitor general, who described same-sex marriage as urban elitist in a submission against legalising the unions. After 21 activists brought the plea before the Supreme Court earlier this year, they argued they were being discriminated against because they couldn't lawfully marry. The government has so far not commented, but aligned groups have celebrated the ruling. So has Vishnu Gupta, the leader of a fringe group, the Hindu Sena. He says the court is right to defer to parliament, and marriage is only between a man and a woman. The court did order the government to set up a committee to investigate ways to eliminate discrimination facing same-sex couples. But it's not clear when that will happen. Anish Gavande is a prominent advocate for equality for India's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer community, often shorthanded to LGBTQ. We must remember that it is an election year next year, which means that the government is going to be less likely if likely at all, to take any action on the matter. Gavande says India has come far on LGBTQ rights. Most prominently five years ago, the Supreme Court struck down a colonial-era law that made gay sex a crime. But more progress now on same-sex marriage is in the hands of a government which has so far actively resisted it. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Mumbai. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's Medicare's open enrollment time again, and this year Americans are hearing a lot about Medicare Advantage. That's the coverage offered by private insurance companies rather than traditional Medicare. More than half of Americans over the age of 65 have signed on to Medicare Advantage plans. And unlike original Medicare, it has lower monthly premiums, splashy TV ads, sometimes even gift cards. Enrollment in these insurance plans is expected to keep increasing, especially in rural areas. But small-town hospitals across the country say Medicare Advantage plans are making it harder for them to operate. Sarah Jane Tribble with our partner KFF Health News reports. Jason Blake runs a five-bed hospital in a remote Nevada gold mining town. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. A few years ago, representatives from several different private insurance companies called on his hospital. They wanted him to sign contracts agreeing to take Medicare Advantage plans. He refused and hasn't heard from any more of them since. Maybe I told enough of them to come back to the table with a better offer. Maybe they just stayed away. For now. Battle Mountain General Hospital is in northern Nevada. Blake suspects insurance companies will start pressuring him to sign Medicare Advantage contracts again soon. Kelly Adams at Mesa View Regional Hospital in southwestern Nevada, along the Utah-Arizona border, is in awe of Jason Blake. You know, I applaud Jason where he's kept them out as long as he has. Adams Hospital is a seven-hour drive from Battle Mountain. It's in a rural area outside Las Vegas. 
Adams says he had to sign 21 different Medicare Advantage contracts because the plans are so popular where he lives. Am I going to say I'm not going to take care of 40 percent of our patient at the hospital or the clinic? That's a tough deal that one would ask us to do. But Adams says the plans are either slow pay or no pay to this facility. In all, Medicare Advantage plans owe Mesa View Regional Hospital more than $800,000 for care already provided. Carrie Cochran-McLean is chief policy officer for the National Rural Health Association. So we represent the vast majority of rural hospitals out there. She says Medicare Advantage plans could make it tough for a lot of them to stay open in the long run. Plus, the plans narrow options for patients by steering patients to specific types of providers. What does she mean by specific types of providers? Adams from Mesa View can answer that. Our local nursing homes are not taking Medicare Advantage patients because they don't get paid. And for Medicare Advantage patients who need a bed in a long-term care facility? Most of them go to St. George, Utah. So they have to travel through Arizona up to Utah to get there. A spokesperson from the industry group AHIP, formerly known as America's Health Insurance Plans, declined to respond to specific complaints raised by Blake and Adams. The federal government is aware of these issues and working on new rules to try to address them. But Blake at Battle Mountain says he doesn't know how long he can hold off Medicare Advantage plans. It could be a matter of a year, months, I don't know. When they do come for his hospital, Blake says he wants the insurance companies to agree to pay enough for him to keep his doors open. That was Sarah Jane Tribble with our partner, KFF Health News. As of last week, the United Auto Workers strike now includes one of the largest and most profitable Ford plants. It makes popular pickup trucks and SUVs in Kentucky. We're following the UAW strike, and on the program, we'll have an update tomorrow. If you aren't by a radio, try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. In the coming hour, we'll hear about a man who faces a vote tomorrow on whether he'll be the next head of the Federal Aviation Administration. He would enter the job at a tough time for U.S. air travel. That story in about 30 minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm. Their litigation attorneys are committed to turning setbacks into comebacks. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M.com. Arts Emerson with The Book of Life, an uplifting story of hope featuring Rwanda's first-ever women's drumming group. Tomorrow through October 22nd, artsemerson.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Light rain to accompany the afternoon commute once again. Should have some clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures just about 47 degrees, much like last night. Tomorrow, you may need the umbrella late in the morning and for the first part of the afternoon. Otherwise, we should have generally sunny skies with temperatures in the mid-60s and then a second sunny day on Thursday. Temperatures still in the mid-60s. In the mid-50s right now, 56 degrees in Boston at 450. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. The Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. 
and Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. On a Mideast trip, President Biden meets Israel's leader, Egypt's president, and the King of Jordan, who doesn't want his country to receive more Palestinian refugees. No refugees in Jordan, no refugees in Egypt. So how can the world help civilians living in a war zone? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Danny Rivera is a 22-year-old vocalist who's drawn to everything from R&B to soul and pop. But most Sundays, you'll find him singing in church. It's where his journey as an artist began. It's also where WBUR's Andrea Shea spoke with Rivera about his calling to reimagine songs by enslaved black people in America. Rivera is one of 10 local artists of color we're highlighting this week. If I can help somebody as I travel On a weekday morning, if Danny Rivera's voice floats above the crimson carpet and empty wooden pews at Holy Tabernacle Church in Dorchester. Part of my commitment to black culture is understanding the black church, which is the staple in the black community. It's where everything goes down, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful. Rivera calls himself a church hopper. He started singing at services as a kid. By age 11, Rivera directed his church's youth choir. He's inspired by his pastor and his parents, who were community organizers. My mother is black, African-American, and my father's from Puerto Rico. For most mixed kids, you're always torn between your culture. You never really feel like you have an identity. And I've always found a strong place and identity in church. Rivera's singing took him outside church, including to the White House, where he performed with a choir for the Obamas. In high school at Boston Arts Academy, he studied classical music. But, Rivera says, the lack of black representation in that genre challenged his identity. He struggled to find his place and his voice. But when I heard spirituals, I was blown away. Spirituals are religious folk songs first sung by enslaved African people during worship, in fields, and as signal songs along the Underground Railroad. Choirs have popularized spirituals, but Rivera wanted to revive the historic songs through a solo lens that speaks to the Black experience today. For as much as it being beautiful, these are very bloody songs. I ain't got long to stay here, ain't got long. Rivera found two collaborators to help rearrange spirituals while studying at Longy School of Music. For his senior recital in 2022, they premiered the project at the African Meeting House in Boston. Rivera called it Songs of Free Men. Mm. Well, these were not free men. So whose songs are these? When did they become free? 
How were they freed through these songs? Rearranging the spirituals with Rivera hit home for organist Gavin Rushing. He's a student at Berklee College of Music and grew up in Georgia. As I play this music, I embody what the songs mean, but I also embody like my grandparents, my grandfather, who, you know, rest his soul, passed away in 2016. But he was born in a time where his father and him were still sharecroppers. They worked on somebody else's land. The musicians reworked the song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord, as their emotional response to George Floyd's murder in 2020. When we were working on this, one thing that we kept on saying was that, my Lord is blank. Were you there when they crucified my Lord. I was maybe 12, 11 when I was watching the riots happen with Michael Brown. My Lord was Michael Brown. I stopped wearing hoodies in middle school because of Trayvon Martin. And Trayvon is my lord. So these are all feelings that come up, which is why we're so committed to bringing the spirituals back, because they not only share what has happened in the past, but it paints a very similar picture to the world that we live in today. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The spirituals keep Rivera grounded, he says, because all of the music he makes, from soul to gospel, jazz, even pop, can be traced back to these early cries for freedom. I feel the need to set the tone for my generation. It's not enough for you to come in and just sing music that makes you feel good. And if you really want to be a contributor to the sound, you've got to know the history and what makes us who we are. Rivera is diving even deeper into this history to expand Songs of Freeman into a performance he hopes to take on tour. He says he feels the restlessness of his ancestors and that it's his duty to make sure their music is heard. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. You can hear more of Danny Rivera's music and learn about the other artists we're featuring this week at WBUR.org. Tomorrow morning, the story of a young pianist and composer who took refuge from Afghanistan in 2021. He's now in Cambridge, raising awareness about the brutality of the Taliban. Support for NPR comes from this station and from United Airlines, on a mission to do good in the air and committed to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Learn more at united.com.
from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotics, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Israeli military is using DNA and dental imprints to identify those who died in the Hamas attack on October 7th. We'll go to the base where the difficult work is taking place. Also, Palestinian Americans in the U.S. are grieving the deaths of family and friends in Gaza. Many also feel they themselves are under attack. I've never seen anti-Palestinian rhetoric this bad before. It's Tuesday, October 17th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead last night, pro-Palestinians and some Israelis gathered in Copley Square, Boston. They say they're dealing with intense and complicated emotions. A Senate committee is set to vote tomorrow on the nomination of Michael Whitaker to head the FAA at a time when aviation experts say the U.S. air travel system shows mounting signs of stress. Also, a new live show features actor John Malkovich transformed into some of the meanest music critics in history. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has canceled a meeting planned tomorrow with President Biden, according to a Palestinian official. The meeting had been scheduled to take place during Biden's trip to the Middle East. NPR's Jackie Northam has more. President Abbas canceled his meeting with President Biden after an explosion at a Gaza City hospital left hundreds dead. The hospital, which was filled with thousands of Palestinians being treated and seeking shelter, is in the the north of the Gaza Strip, an area repeatedly hit by Israeli airstrikes. But the Israeli military is blaming the explosion on a misfired rocket launched by the Islamic Jihad, a militant group aligned with Hamas. The World Health Organization says the hospital was one of 20 in Gaza facing evacuation orders from the Israeli military, but it couldn't be carried out because of the current insecurity situation. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Jerusalem. Congressman Jim Jordan has lost his first bid to become the next Speaker of the House. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports 20 Republicans joined Democrats in voting against his bid to secure the gavel. Speaking ahead of the vote, Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik said Jordan was the right person to lead the House going forward. Our friend and colleague Jim Jordan is a patriot. 
He is an America first warrior who wins the toughest of fights, going after corruption and delivering accountability at the highest levels of government. It's unclear whether Jordan will be able to flip enough Republican holdouts in subsequent ballots. The congressman had picked up some key endorsements ahead of today's vote, but so far has failed to win over a number of mainstream Republicans who criticize him as too extreme for the speakership. A second round of voting has not yet been scheduled. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Former President Donald Trump looked on in a New York courtroom today as his former appraiser undermined his property valuations. NPR's Andrew Bernstein has more. Under direct examination, appraiser Douglas Larson said he'd valued one Manhattan office building at $540 million. But in documents prepared for a bank, the Trump Organization said that building was worth $200 million more. Is that consistent with your appraisal? Assistant AG Mark Ladob asked the witness. No, it is not, Larson said. At issue in the case is whether there was a conspiracy to lie to lenders about property values. Trump sat quietly in the courtroom while lawyers displayed spreadsheet after spreadsheet. Outside the courtroom, he called the $250 million civil case, quote, a railroading. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow was up 13 points. The Nasdaq down 34. The S&P 500 gained a fraction. Crude oil prices were higher, up 1.1 percent. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Cambridge City Council is moving forward with a plan to let taller buildings be built in the city for affordable housing. The buildings could be up to 15 stories high in some of the city's major squares, including Harvard and Central Squares. The councillors voted 6-3 to three to pass the measure last night. City Councillor Mark McGovern was the lead sponsor of the bill. It's not going to solve our problem, nor is it going to destroy our city. And it's going to be another tool in the toolbox to allow affordable housing developers a little more flexibility and a little more opportunity to make a dent in this crisis. McGovern estimates that about three to five of those projects could be built throughout Cambridge over the next 10 or more years. The Boston Planning and Development Agency has launched a program to grant tax breaks to developers who convert offices into residential buildings. It's to support those who own older downtown commercial office buildings and to increase Boston's housing stock. Approvals for tax breaks will be granted on a rolling basis. Construction on the housing would need to begin by October 2025. The mandates Boston University put in place at the start of the pandemic worked in preventing the virus from spreading. That's from a BU study that tested samples of students, faculty, and staff before the vaccines were available. Study author Jackie Tursinkovic says that by comparing virus genomes, they were able to determine that most COVID cases on the BU campus were not spread from student to student. She says the study has implications for other respiratory diseases. The non-pharmacological interventions that BU had in place at the time were really effective in making sure that when transmission did happen and someone got sick, that virus did not go on to transmit and then infect more people. Trusinovic says she was surprised at how effective the COVID protocols worked. A woman is now leading Acton's fire department for the first time. Anita Arnum assumed the role last Friday. She served with the Acton Fire Department since the start of her career in 1989. 57 degrees now, lots of clouds around, light rain into the evening. Tonight, partly cloudy skies, about 47 for a low. Generally sunny tomorrow, though we could have some random showers in the middle of the day. Highs about 66. Thursday should be sunny. 
and up around 66 once again. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Paramount Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, and directed by Martin Scorsese. Only in theaters, October 20th, rated R. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Israel. We are on an army base south of Tel Aviv, and the sun is sinking behind low clouds as the smell of eucalyptus fills the air. A man in uniform wearing a kippah is leading us to see this place that the remains of people who were killed in the massacre have been brought for identification. I ask you to respect this place. I ask you to respect the dead. Like many members of the Israel Defense Forces, Lehi is only authorized to give us her first name. She wanted journalists from all over the world to see something that medical examiners, doctors, and rabbis have been bearing witness to over the last week. And a warning, the descriptions her colleagues gave are graphic and not suitable for some listeners. We as a people can't remain silent for something like this. Colonel Chaim Weisberg is head rabbi of the IDF. A military spokesman named David translates for him. Rabbi Weisberg has spent nearly 20 years in his position. He says usually when a Jew dies, a family member says a prayer called the mourner's Kaddish for the dead. The regular way would be for a child to say Kaddish, this prayer, for his parents. But here, we have entire families that no one's going to be able to say Kaddish for them. More than a thousand bodies have been brought here, truck after truck, full of human remains. People who were murdered when Hamas stormed across the border from Gaza into Israel on October 7th. Rabbi Weisberg breaks down as he describes in detail the conditions some of the bodies arrived in, burned and mutilated. Young girls, elderly women, raped. Soldiers and citizens whose heads were chopped off. Many of the people identifying and caring for the dead are military reservists. They have day jobs as civilians. But since the attack, they've been here, like a dentist named Mayan. She identifies people's remains by their dental imprints. Next to, to the identification place when we take place, there is family room to say goodbye to their loved ones, uh, to say their last goodbye. So while identifying, we can hear the screams and we can hear the cries of a woman bearing her child, of child. Losing his parents and stay orphaned. And we hear the cry and we hear the screams and we're still identifying tirelessly, uncompromisingly, 
to give this fallen the last respect that nobody gave them. We walk towards the brightly lit white tent where soldiers have been doing this work. It is difficult work and the details, as you'll hear, are brutal. One of the soldiers is handing out a packet of masks because the smell is very strong. People have been working in a 24-7 shift since the massacre began. Even now, more than a week later, there are still bodies that haven't been identified. The rabbi said they have three ways of identifying bodies. One is a loved one, visually recognizing the person. Another is dental records. And the third is DNA identification. And he said, in too many of these cases, we have had to use DNA because the body has been so mutilated, he said, even in the case of children. There were about a dozen shipping containers refrigerated side by side. And uh, men in white coveralls have just opened four of the shipping containers. And inside, stacked four high, are body bags. And some of the body bags are very, very small. And the rabbi says, usually when we're here, we don't speak. When you open the doors, you see that small sack. That's a baby. A light rain is starting to fall. A TV cameraman suddenly hunches over, sobbing. We walk in the misty drizzle to a small covered picnic table, the smoker's corner. And there we sit in the dark with a woman named Avigail. Like others, the IDF only authorized her to give her first name. It's hard to remember these days, but I work in high tech. In Judaism, as in many religious traditions, there are rules for how a body is supposed to be treated before burial. For many years, Avigail has done that preparation for burial as a reservist for the army. There's a concept of respect for the dead. It's treating every dead person with the dignity and respect that we'd want, the same as we'd want in when we're living. We're also very conscious of, is the woman exposed on the table and to try to cover up when possible. Any part that was part of the human being, we bring it to burial with the body. So if there are ashes, we're very careful not to lose any of the ashes. If there's skin that was torn away, certainly if there's blood, if there's flesh, we collect everything so that it's all buried with the body. When I ask what the last week has felt like to her, more than a thousand bodies to be identified and prepared for burial, from babies to elders, she says, for most of the last week, she has felt very little. Blocking out feelings was the only way to do the work that needed to be done. Um, despite the fact that I was only sleeping about two hours per 24 our cycle, and I was hardly eating. I felt like I, I had the energy. Um, I don't know if it's adrenaline or the mission, the importance of the mission, and just uh, keep going, keep going, do the work, understand that it's horrific what we're seeing, but do our best to get the correct identification for each of the murdered women and prepare them for burial in the most respectful manner once they've been identified. I think uh, in the last day, we've been slowing down just a little. We're making a lot of progress. And so, so I think it's, it's, getting, it's catching up with me a little. You're starting to feel the yeah. feelings. The, the exhaustion, but it's not really the physical. It's maybe part of it is the physical exhaustion. It's the mental exhaustion. We're talking about it a little more. We have some psychiatrists and social workers that are talking to us after shifts. But I think we're, it's, it's like starting to, 
to build up. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. I don't remember what yeah. it was. How you're feeling. And it sounds yeah. like for um, a while you weren't feeling much and now you're really feeling a lot. Yes. As somebody who has done this work in the army for a long time, you've seen people killed in violent ways. How has this been different from the deaths from violence that you have already dealt with over many years? I think it's, it's different in two ways. Um, the numbers are like mind-boggling. I still, you know, I'm at it and at it and I can't wrap my head around it. I go through the lists again and I'm like, wow, and I can't believe that I can't remember from two days ago what exactly. Was she the one that was in her cute pajamas or was she the one that was, you know, uh, I don't know what. The numbers are incredible and it, it's not just knowing the numbers, it's seeing the amount and, and the smell intensifies. It's something that that I've never you know seeing horrible deaths I've never had to deal with the smell of this intensity and the other is it's never felt this cruel I mean we're seeing bodies that were mutilated after they were already dead what like why is you know it's it's harder to I feel wrap my head around it this experience has obviously changed you has it changed your view of humanity has it changed your view of people I think it's, uh, it shattered something in my sense of security. It's certainly, you know, something in the sense of the equilibrium of the world, of the, the balance of good and evil. You know, I kept, for, for years growing up, I thought that the world is improving. As a human being, as a woman, I felt like things were progressing in the right direction. I, I can't think that anymore, and that's, that's shattering. Over our heads, Israeli military jets rumble through the sky. And as we drive away from the army base, a siren blares through the air. Every car on the freeway pulls over to the shoulder. People huddle on the blacktop from the threat of incoming rockets. Reminders that while people are still identifying the bodies from October 7th, the war and its death toll only continue to grow. Earlier today, that death toll grew dramatically in Gaza. An explosion hit a hospital. Hundreds of people were killed. Egypt condemned what it called a, quote, deliberate bombing of civilian facilities. The Palestinian ambassador to the UK called it a massacre and war crimes, posting an image of the building on fire. And the Palestinian Authority declared three days of mourning. Israel's military blamed Islamic Jihad, saying the hospital explosion was a failed rocket launch.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered. Palestinian Americans who say they're afraid to mourn the death of their loved ones in public. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. And Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. Just a minor gain for the Dow today, up just a small fraction of a percent. S&P closed little change. The Nasdaq lost a quarter of a percent. The Cambridge Community Foundation is investing more than $1 million in the city's emergency food system. The funds will go to nonprofits across the city, including Daily Table and Food for Free. As of two years ago, about one of every eight Cambridge residents faced food insecurity. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding. With three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass, Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org. Some clouds around tonight, temperatures about 47 degrees. Tomorrow, you may need the umbrella late morning through the first part of the afternoon anyway. Otherwise, partly to mostly sunny skies. Temperatures in the mid-60s could have a second sunny day on Thursday, still in the mid-60s. 56 degrees in Boston. The time is 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grant Chester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. We're in the midst of the WNBA Finals, where things may be looking up for the New York Liberty. The Las Vegas Aces took the first two games in the Best of Five series, but the Liberty got a win on Sunday night in Brooklyn, which prevented them from being eliminated. Here's Jones. Into the corner. Laney. You bet. That was the first finals win for New York since 1999, and the Liberty are the only original WNBA franchise still operating that has yet to win a championship. So we have called basketball legend and ESPN commentator Rebecca Lobo to get her perspective. Hi, Rebecca. Hey, how are you? I'm good. You were a member of that original Liberty franchise, and I understand you were in the building for Sunday's win, along with that other record crowd of 17,000 fans. What was it like to watch it? It was incredible. It was just incredible to be in that environment. This is a New York Liberty team that moved to Brooklyn uh, a couple of years ago. The fan base has just continued to grow. And for them now to be back in the finals for the first time since 2002, it's just been really fun to watch, to see all the celebrities that are coming to sit courtside and (laughs) to see the building completely sold out was incredible. And it's something that started at the beginning of the season once they realized how good this team was going to be this year and has just continued to grow. 
Las Vegas is the defending league champion. What do you think makes them so hard to play against? Vegas has a number of number one picks on their roster. They have Asia Wilson, who was the MVP a season ago, a two-time MVP. They're an incredibly talented team. Their starting five players all started in the finals a year ago. They have the experience of playing with one another. One thing that's really interesting as we look ahead to this game four on Wednesday is that their point guard, Chelsea Gray, who has been vital to their success this season, went down with an injury with about five minutes to go in game three. Her status is uncertain. We're kind of all waiting to see whether or not she's going to be able to play. Hmm. So with that possible wild card of not knowing whether or not that point guard, Chelsea Gray, will be playing, what are you expecting from Wednesday's matchup? Well, it's really interesting because in games one and two, both played in Vegas, the aces were dominant and neither game was close, which is interesting, too, because they played five times in the regular season. New York won three, Vegas won two. None of those games were close either. And then you come to, to game three and New York was back at home and was able to pull that one out. So I expect another incredibly competitive game. You know, in terms of what's going to happen on the court, a lot will depend on the health of Chelsea Gray. And uh, if she is not able to play, I would not be surprised at all to see this go back to Vegas for a game five. We mentioned that you're a commentator for ESPN now. What is it like to watch it, the game as an analyst? Does it change the experience at all? I so love being around basketball, but always kind of knew that coaching wasn't in my future. And so being able to sit courtside and do it as an analyst has, has been incredible. I've been doing it now for ESPN for 20 years. And when I first started and I was fresh off of my playing career, it was a little more challenging because there are still people out there who were teammates of mine and, and still, you know, kind of had that teammate bond and relationship. But as the years have gone on, um, that obviously has changed and the popularity of the game has grown. And I'm the mother of four, three daughters who all play sports or ah. at least did at some point when they were growing up. And so it's been gratifying for me to see the different climate they've grown up in than the one I did. A more supportive one for women's athletes. It's certainly one that has a lot more opportunity. By the way, as you watched, you wish you could be back out there? <laughs> no, which tells you I, I retired <laughs> just at the right time, especially with how my body feels just getting out of bed these days. I'm, I'm more relieved than anything that I don't have to go and put, put it through this stuff anymore. <laughs> That's former WNBA player and ESPN commentator Rebecca Lobo. Thank you. Thank you. It has been a year and a half since the Federal Aviation Administration had a Senate-confirmed leader on the job. That could begin to change tomorrow when the White House pick to lead the FAA faces a crucial vote in the Senate Commerce Committee. Michael Whitaker is a former airline executive who has served at the agency before, and he would be returning at a time when the aviation system is showing signs of stress, as NPR's Joel Rose reports. Air traffic controllers are trained to keep their cool. So when you hear something like this, you know it's bad. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. In January, Delta and American planes nearly collided on a runway at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York. Here's the Delta pilot exhaling afterward via the website liveatc.net. All right, then. Uh, the Delta 1943. The next month, there was another close call on a foggy morning in Austin, Texas, when a FedEx plane came within 100 feet of landing on a Southwest jet that had been told to take off on the same runway. Southwest abort. FedEx is on the go. To be clear, flying is still incredibly safe. There have been no major U.S. plane crashes since 2009. But the close calls are adding up. 
Aviation experts say it's a troubling sign of a system under stress as it strains to keep up with a post-pandemic rebound in air travel. We need to hear today about a plan on how to tackle those safety issues across our skies. That's Democrat Maria Cantwell, the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, at a hearing earlier this month. Cantwell and other senators had a lot of questions about safety for President Biden's pick to lead the FAA, Michael Whitaker. If confirmed, my priority will be the safety of the flying public. They have put their trust in the FAA to keep aviation the safest way to travel, and the world has looked to us for decades as the gold standard. But the gold standard is looking a bit tarnished after a year of close calls. The FAA has more than 11,000 air traffic controllers working today, but that's roughly 3,000 fewer than it needs. Whitaker said he'd work to rebuild that workforce quickly. I would view my role as administrator, as, as chief recruitment officer, certainly for FAA, but also for the industry. Whitaker had a long career as an airline executive and served as deputy administrator at the FAA during the Obama administration. He's gotten a warmer welcome on Capitol Hill than the previous nominee, who withdrew after staunch opposition from Republicans, including Ted Cruz of Texas, the committee's ranking member. But even Cruz had some kind words this time around. I'm glad that the administration has heeded my advice and nominated a person with significant experience in aviation. Whitaker's nomination has gotten wide support from the airline industry and its biggest unions, also from his former boss at the FAA. Mike was completely unflappable, no matter what got thrown at us. Michael Huerta was the FAA administrator when Whitaker was his second in command. He says Whitaker is the right guy to lead the FAA at a challenging moment, Though, Huerta warns it will take time to rebuild the ranks of air traffic controllers. You can't just hire people and expect them to be able to do the job. There's a very extended training program. Meanwhile, air traffic has come back, I think, much more rapidly than anyone was expecting. They definitely need new investment. They need new technology. That's Michael Whitaker speaking to NPR's Morning Edition back in January, before he was nominated for the top job at the FAA. He said the agency needs a more stable source of funding. Congress passes authorizations. They pass budgets. Those are inconsistent. They're not predictable. They're short-term. And then you have things like government shutdowns that interfere with the process. The FAA's current five-year authorization is set to expire in December. Whitaker's backers say having stable leadership at the agency won't fix its problems overnight, but it would be a good place to start. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for joining us. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Palestinians and their supporters in Boston want an end to U.S. military aid to Israel. Stay tuned in about 15 minutes for that story and then much more. If you're getting news alerts all day long, it can be hard to get your head around the full story. Get WBUR's mobile app and we'll be there live with context and perspective. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. Partly cloudy tonight, then sunshine tomorrow, little bit of rain, temperatures in the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Brown University's Master's in Technology Leadership, preparing strategic leaders with innovative skills. Professional.brown.edu. And Brookline Bank where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC.
I'm Scott Tong. President Biden travels to Tel Aviv and Jordan to show support for Israel and to meet with both Israeli and Arab leaders in the region. Meanwhile, Russian President Putin is in Beijing, meeting with Chinese leader Xi as the war in Ukraine goes on. We will have the latest next time in Here and Now. Listening in tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Russia's parliament has voted to scrap its ratification of a treaty banning nuclear weapons tests. As NPR's Jeff Brumfield tells us, arms control experts are concerned by the move. Russia's state Duma voted overwhelmingly to rescind ratification of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which would prohibit nuclear weapons testing globally. The pact is not yet enforced, but since the 1990s, the world's major nuclear powers have committed to a voluntary test moratorium in accordance with its provisions. Russia also recently suspended a major treaty with the U.S. that limits the number of weapons deployed and violated another agreement prohibiting some kinds of nuclear missiles. Jeffrey Lewis of the Middlebury Institute of International Studies says he's worried by this trend. I think we're just in a really dangerous, uncertain period where things could really break badly for us. For now, Russia says it will continue to abide by the test ban, but just last week, President Vladimir Putin hinted that he was open to the idea of future nuclear testing. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. In Georgia, federal and state law enforcement are in the second day of searching for four men who escaped from a county jail. Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting has more. The four men, including one who faces a murder charge, slipped through a broken window and a fence at the Bibb County Detention Center at 3 a.m. Monday. Bibb County Sheriff David Davis says the escape could be due to chronically inadequate jail staffing and overcrowding. But the main thing is you got an old facility. You're just moving stuff around to make the best of a bad situation. We have a 40-something-year-old facility that's really just crumbling. That, he says, means parts of the Bibb County Jail are easy to escape. Davis says an internal investigation is underway even during the manhunt. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, Georgia. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll is defending the administration's handling of the state's housing crisis. Governor Maura Healey warned yesterday that emergency shelter space could run out by the end of the month. Adam Frenier has more. Massachusetts has a long-standing right to shelter law, but Healy indicated her administration may not be able to abide by it. Some advocates are concerned creating a waiting list for shelter space could be problematic and does not fulfill the state's legal obligations. During a visit to Springfield, Driscoll was asked about the situation. We're not eradicating the right to shelter law. We're going to continue to do everything we can. The reality is, though, we are running out of space. We are running out of resources. And we're going to continue to try and serve families as well as we can, consistent with our Massachusetts values. A supplemental budget bill filed by Healy calls for a quarter billion dollars to help deal with the shelter crisis. It's pending in the legislature. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is celebrating the opening of Boston Green Academy's new outdoor classroom in Brighton. The mayor and Boston School Superintendent Mary Skipper held a ribbon cutting today. The charter school's open-air classroom features raised garden beds, outdoor furniture, and a hydroponic farm. It's the first of 10 new outdoor classrooms to be created for Boston Public Schools. Climate change has delayed the harvest of cranberries in the state. Hillary Sandler directs the UMass Cranberry Research Station in Wareham. She says 
berry picking began more than 10 days later than usual last month. Warm temperatures in September were partly to blame for the delay. She says cranberries need the cool nighttime temperatures to turn deep red. So we've been waiting for color, and that's always balanced with the longer the fruit are on the vines, the more rot you're going to get. So it's it's always a very anxious time. Cranberries are the state's largest food crop. This year's harvest is forecast to be down about 1% from last year. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Shows and showers here and there until about 7 tonight, then clouds overnight, 47 degrees for low. For tomorrow, sunny for a change, although we should have some showers around the middle of the day, moving up to the mid-60s tomorrow, 56 now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Palestinian Americans are grieving for loved ones in Gaza as Israel continues to bomb the area in response to a Hamas attack that killed more than 1,400 Israelis. The Palestinian death toll now tops 3,000. Hundreds more died today in a hospital bombing. It's not yet clear who is responsible. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., Palestinian Americans say they fear rising Islamophobia, and many of them are frustrated by U.S. support for Israel, while Israel's airstrikes contribute to a growing humanitarian crisis. NPR's Sandia Dirks reports. If you ask Tariq Lubum how he's feeling, he'll tell you. Devastated, terrified, dehumanized, and erased. I'm literally watching my family get bombed and then being gaslit to say, oh, they deserve it. Lubum lives in Detroit. By day, he's a data engineer. By night, he's a poet and community organizer. He says people are conflating Palestinian civilians like his family with Hamas. Hamas controls Gaza, but there haven't been elections there in almost 20 years. And he says there's a false narrative. This all just started with Hamas's attack on Israel. This is the fifth conflict with Israel in 15 years. For more than half my life, I've only known the Gaza that was under attack. But this war, he says, is so much worse. And Israel's complete siege of Gaza has halted food, medical supplies, and fuel from getting in. Power and water have been cut off. And civilians can't get out. Lubum says it's not just worse for Palestinians there. It's worse here as well. I've never seen anti-Palestinian rhetoric this bad before. On Sunday, a Palestinian-American family was attacked by their landlord in the Chicago area. The mother was severely wounded. Her six-year-old son was killed. The Justice Department is investigating it as a hate crime. 
Hani Al-Madun is based in D.C. and works for a U.N. agency that provides relief for Palestinian refugees. He says rhetoric from some U.S. politicians made something like this inevitable. They've stoked the fear in the hearts of Americans. They made us animals and beasts and barbarians. And the media ran with it. He's afraid for his kids here in the U.S. He's afraid for his family in Gaza. I had my sister ask me to adopt her daughter if they get bombed and her daughter survives. He says it's hard to hear President Biden say his administration stands with Israel without reservation. While Biden has urged Israel's prime minister to minimize civilian casualties, he said Israel has the right to defend itself and has not publicly condemned the siege of Gaza. In recent days, the president has emphasized that innocent Palestinians are being harmed, and U.S. officials say they are helping develop a plan to get aid into Gaza. But Al-Madun says it's too little too late. Palestinians in Gaza are dead, and nobody seems to care. In this toxic atmosphere, it can be scary to voice any criticism of Israel, says Rania Mustafa. She's the executive director of the Palestinian American Community Center, an advocacy group. There is this huge rhetoric of speaking for Palestinians or against Israel is anti-Semitic. It is not. Mustafa has been getting calls from across the country, people afraid to advocate for Palestinians in the moment they feel it's most needed, afraid they'll lose their jobs or be doxxed or be physically harmed. I think this is once again another time where Palestinian Americans are being punished for being Palestinian. She says many are afraid just to mourn their dead out loud. Sandia Dirks, NPR News. Actor John Malkovich is probably best known for, well, being John Malkovich. There's a tiny door in my office, Maxine, and it takes you inside John Malkovich. But in a new live stage show, Malkovich transforms into some of the meanest music critics in history. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siokis sat down with Malkovich and his co-conspirator before their U.S. tour. And a warning, this piece contains some coarse language. The music critic pairs great classical music with eye-wateringly snarky reviews from the time the music was written, rendered in John Malkovich's singular voice. Mr. Frederick Chopin has, by some means or the other which we cannot divine, obtained an enormous reputation too often refused to composers who possess several times his genius. Mr. Chopin is by no means a composer of the ordinary, he is worse. John Malkovich's friend, violinist and comedian Alexei Igudisman, created the show. Alongside a small group of musicians, the two traverse and trash some of the best music of all time in a gleeful romp through history. No one is let off the hook. Not Beethoven. Beethoven first fills the soul with sweet melancholy and then shatters it by a mass of barbarous chords. He seems to harbor together both doves and crocodiles. Brahms gets a walloping, too.
listen to the words of some of his contemporaries. This is from the wonderful composer Tchaikovsky's diary. I played over the music of that scoundrel Brahms. What a giftless bastard. The music critic is part concert, part theater. John Malkovich says, for him, the similarities between creating live theater and performing music was part of the draw. I always say theater is like surfing because you kind of paddle out on your little board. You turn your back to the sun and you wave for a wave. You're not the wave, which I think most people think they are, <laughs> but you're really not the wave. The wave is created by the collision between the material and the public. You ride the wave or you don't. And that's the fun of this show for sure. But Alexei Gudisman adds, there's something more at the heart of the music critic and there's a lesson in it for all of us. Everyone is going to be at the receiving end of bad reviews at some point. If Beethoven got dissed, well, you will too, says Agudasman. We think of it as a very life-affirming and a very much art-affirming piece and an inspirational piece for people in the creative industry to keep going. You know, take all the criticism in stride. Enjoy it. Have fun with it because you're going to get it. There's no one who's going to be spared. The music critic is currently touring across the U.S. with stops in cities including Seattle, New York, Los Angeles, Dallas, and Chicago. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. As President Joe Biden plans a visit to Israel this week, Palestinians and their supporters in Boston are calling for an end to military aid to Israel. Hundreds of people took part in a demonstration last night on the steps of the Boston Public Library in Copley Square. WBR Simone Rios was there. The first lines of the Quran rang out from the crowd, led by local Palestinian refugee and Harvard Medical School researcher Mahmoud al-Rifai. He was among hundreds of protesters who gathered last night to call for a free Palestine and an end to U.S. aid to Israel. After speaking to the crowd, El Rifai says his faith and his Palestinian identity led him to speak out. What brings me here today, the silence of the world, the injustice that's taking place in, in Palestine, where the whole world is just accepting of the killing of innocent people in Gaza. That's what brings me here today. The event was organized by a coalition of groups, including the Palestinian Youth Movement and the Boston branch of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. A sea of people in red, green, and white waved Palestinian flags and carried signs condemning Israel and claiming resistance is not terrorism. Among the local Palestinian speakers was Leah Kayali. She pointed to the resilience of Gazans. Our people are not passive victims. They are heroes. Several protesters said they could face professional repercussions for expressing solidarity with Palestinians at this time. Kareem Raji is 18 and a student at UMass Boston. He came into town from Methuen, though other family members decided not to. 
there's never been a more like more of a backlash against being pro-Palestinian than it is in this conflict because it started off obviously with the attacks on Saturday morning. So they're they're super worried about the same time they can't show like they like they, they can't even speak up against the crimes happening against Palestinians because they're scared of the backlash. Fighting began 10 days ago after the militant group Hamas attacked Israel, leading to more than 1400 Israeli deaths so far. Nearly twice as many Palestinians have been killed since then, according to officials in Gaza. As Israel pledges to launch a broader attack to obliterate Hamas, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have fled their homes in Gaza, creating what is widely viewed as a humanitarian crisis. Following the speeches in Boston Monday night, the crowd marched down Boylston Street to the Israeli consulate at Park Plaza. Off to the side, at Dartmouth and Boylston Streets, a woman played the Israeli national anthem on a violin. A group of five Israel supporters gathered across the street from the protest. One of them placed a small Israeli flag on a fence behind the violinist. Rina Sidlau, a 29-year-old psychologist who works near Copley Square, says she felt angry hearing anti-Israel chants from the library steps. So I walked across the street to get closer, and then I saw this woman playing the violin, and she was alone playing Hatikva, which means hope, and that's our national anthem in Israel. And so I just stood by, and it was a beautiful moment, but yeah, I couldn't leave. Also there was Moshe Ben Sadon, a master's student at Boston University. He said he lives near Copley and could not be silent while people were chanting, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. My question is, what river, what sea? The Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. With all these catchy slogans, they say, for ethnic cleansing, they're literally preaching for the removal of all Jews from the land. To people on both sides, even thousands of miles from the front lines, this conflict is intensely personal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. And Stepping Stone, directly supporting Boston students since 1990 and until all have access to earn a college degree. Learn more at SteppingStone.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Lots of clouds out there. Light rain into the evening. Partly cloudy tonight. 47 for a low. Generally sunny tomorrow. Maybe some random showers in the middle of the day. High temperatures in the mid-60s. Boston Celtics take on the New York Knicks tonight at the Garden. It's Boston's final home game of the preseason. Tip-off tonight is 7.30. Bruins are off until Thursday night. Trick-or-treaters can head to Fenway Park next Friday afternoon to load up on suites around the warning track. Then they can snack on the goodies while watching the film Hocus Pocus. Trick-or-treating starts at Fenway at 4 in the afternoon on Friday, October 27th. This is WBUR. The air is crisp. The cider donuts are hot. It's fall in New England. If you're like me, you might be wondering where to go leaf peeping. Here's a tip from our field guide to Boston. There are some relatively easy trails for new hikers or families close to the city like Blue Hills or Middlesex Fells reservations. But be aware, you might run into a crowd of neighbors also trying to take in the fall colors. If you want something more challenging with less crowds, lace up your hiking boots and head up Caribou Mountain in Maine or Mount Monadnock in New Hampshire. And remember, by the time trees in Boston are changing color, trees further north may already be shedding their leaves. 
To get more tips like this about navigating the seasons in Boston, head to WBUR.org slash Field Guide. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. You know when you're walking around looking for a great Chinese restaurant and you spot one that is filled with mostly Chinese people? I mean, take it from me, that is usually the sign of where you want to eat, right? But one terrific Chinese restaurant in Detroit called Chung's drew a very different-looking crowd. It was one of the rare places in the segregated city where everyone felt welcome. Black or white, rich or poor, Christian or Jewish, the restaurant, we took anyone's money. For Curtis Chin, Chung's wasn't just a family business. It was a world view. He grew up in that restaurant and watched it offer anyone who entered its doors not just mouth-watering almond boneless chicken or sizzling beef. What it really offered was community. In his new memoir, Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant, Chin reminisces about growing up in 1980s Detroit, a gay Chinese-American kid who was very much searching for his own community. Curtis Chin joins us now. Welcome. You made me hungry just by that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I was hungry reading this entire <laughs> book, Curtis. I, I, you write so lovingly, like so proudly about how it didn't matter who you were, that you would have a seat at the table at Chung's. And I want you to tell me more about that, like how a Chinese restaurant essentially became a safe space in Detroit. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting story because I grew up in Detroit in the 80s, which arguably was one of the worst times for the city, right? We had the struggling auto industry. We had crack cocaine. We had AIDS. I personally knew five people murdered by the time I was 18 years old. Wow. But despite this, we had this fabulous Chinese restaurant in the inner city, which welcomed everybody. And I felt safe there. I really would not have changed or traded that childhood with anybody. Well, early on in your childhood, when your family was living in Detroit, you talk about how you grew up around more people of color than white people, you know, because Detroit was a mainly black and white city. How did being Chinese American specifically feel in that mix? Well, obviously, I knew that I wasn't either. And, you know, because I knew that I was neither, I was really forced to choose sides early on. And I tried to play middle ground. And I think that's what a lot of Asian Americans do, right? You know, there were challenges moving out to the suburbs. Um, we did face a lot of discrimination, which I talk about in the book, uh, not just passive microaggression, but also actually violent physical stuff. I mean, you know, and vandalism to our house. Right. Um, but, you know, I do feel that I was lucky because... Uh, I grew up in that Chinese restaurant, and our Chinese restaurant uh, had a very diverse clientele. And so anytime my dad met someone who was, you know, had an interesting job, not just white-collar jobs, but even blue-collar jobs, anyone who had an interesting life or a different background, my dad would call all six of us to run over and barrage <laughs> these customers with questions of like, you know, how did you get your job? What do you do at work? And because of that, I just was always curious about meeting people. I love that you brought up your dad so much in this memoir. I love the descriptions of him. You referred to him lovingly as Big Al. He would mm. stand up there at the front of the restaurant like he was the emissary to the world. And he would find something he could relate to with any customer, any stranger. And you say in that book that he showed you there are many ways to be a man. Tell me why you said that. 
You know, my dad was really incredible. I mean, um, he just loved his job. He just loved being a Chinese waiter. And I actually say that these days, like, even though I don't work in a Chinese restaurant anymore, I still feel like a Chinese waiter a lot of times. In what the do sense you mean that, by that? Yeah. I'm always just trying to please people. I'm always asking people, how are you doing? You know, do you need something? And I feel like that's something I, you know, picked up from him. It's just, I'm always trying to solve problems. Well, as much as you love your parents, you know, one of the hardest things that you talk about in your story is how you once feared that if you came out as a gay boy, you would be banished from your own family. And there was a period of time when you wanted to, as you put it, de-gay yourself, to somehow forcefully change your sexual identity. Can you talk a little bit about that time? No matter how confident you are that your parents are going to love you and accept you for who you are, there's always this 0.001% chance that you might be wrong, right? And you just don't want to take that chance. You don't want to risk it. And so even though, you know, my parents always exhibited, you know, uh, positive feelings towards gay people. I mean, they had gay friends, we had gay customers, um, you know, and they never said anything homophobic. I just couldn't take that chance. Well, speaking of taking a chance, what I noticed is that although this book is so much about learning to embrace your sexual identity, you don't include in this memoir any moment where you are coming out to your parents. It never happens in this book. <laughs> I presume that you have come out or you did come out to your parents. Tell me why you didn't include that moment in this memoir. <laughs> You're you laughing. To, do you, I'm wondering, do you need to say that's a spoiler alert? <laughs> No, it's, no it's, it's, because it's, I'm talking about something that ended up not happening in the book. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because I think that a lot of times the coming out process is so much focused on the outside world, right? Yeah. But I really think that the most important thing about coming out is just coming out to yourself. That's the biggest, most important hurdle that we face. So the fact that, that as long as I knew who I was and I accepted myself, that's probably the most important thing. Yeah. You know, uh, my parents have been great. You know, my dad is no longer with us, sadly, but my mom has embraced, you know, um, me for who I am. And and, and I actually think she she, um, is more fond of my husband than she is of me (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) That happens so often. He's much more attentive than I am. (laughs) And my siblings all call him, too, because I think their excuse is that, that I'm always on the road and they never know what time zone I'm in. But I, I think they call just, the husband. He'll yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I think they just like that talking to him better. <laughs> well, Curtis, when you say everything you learned, you learned in a Chinese restaurant. What do you think is maybe the most important thing that you learned? I think it's just a general thought of you know. Um, I don't know if it's related specifically to the restaurant or just being my family, just being kind. It's probably the thing I think about the most is how can we be more kind to each other? And I think that one of the beautiful things about a Chinese restaurant is that it is one of those few places where you can go in and, you know, be seated next to someone from a different racial, you know, socioeconomic, religious, you know, sexual orientation background. And maybe if you just took a time to just, you know, talk to the person sitting next to you and maybe have a conversation, even if it's just as shallow as like, oh, what'd you order? Do you know what I mean? Like, even if you can just have these little moments where we connect with each other that maybe our country, you know, wouldn't be fighting so much. And I feel like that's something I'm hoping to do with this book. And so the way I sort of mentioned this to my friends and, you know, to my agent was like, you know, um, come for the egg rolls, but stay for the talk on racism. Because, (laughs) um, you know, there's some very important issues we're dealing with. I don't want to skirt them. 
but let's do it in a way that actually um, brings us together instead of, you know, drives a wedge. I couldn't agree more. Curtis Chin's new book is called Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. Thank you so much, Curtis. Thank you, and I look forward to sharing a plate of almond boneless chicken or something with you someday. You are on. Great. (laughs) You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Doubleday, publisher of The Exchange by John Grisham. The hero of The Firm returns in a new sequel. The Exchange After The Firm is available now in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. From FJC, a foundation of donor advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. And from EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. Temperatures are heading downward 55 degrees in Boston now. Light rain into the early evening, then tonight partly cloudy skies, about 47 for a low. Tomorrow generally sunny, although we could have some random showers in the middle of the day. Highs near 66. Thursday should bring more sunshine than clouds, a little milder, up around 66 again. It's 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I rise today to nominate the gentleman from Ohio, Jim Jordan, as Speaker of the People's House. But the conservative allied with Donald Trump failed to win over enough Republicans to win the speakership. The House is now regrouping before the next vote. Today is Tuesday, October 17th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, hundreds of people have been killed in a huge explosion at a hospital in Gaza. Israel and Palestinian officials are blaming each other for the strike. And a musician inspired by historic spirituals that have been sung by enslaved men has revived them for audiences today. It's not enough for you to come in and just sing music that makes you feel good. And if you really want to be a contributor to the sound, you've got to know the history. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. 
protests in the occupied West Bank today after hundreds of people were killed in an explosion that hit a crowded hospital packed with thousands of Palestinians being treated or seeking shelter in northern Gaza. That's according to the Gaza Health Ministry. That hospital is in an area that's been repeatedly hit by Israeli airstrikes, but the Israeli military blames the explosion on a misfired rocket from the Islamic Jihad, which is a militant group aligned with Hamas. Meanwhile, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has now canceled a planned meeting with President Biden tomorrow during Biden's visit to the Middle East. And in light of the hospital attack, Biden says he's canceling his trip to Jordan, where he was to meet with King Abdullah and Egypt's President Sisi. U.S. officials and Ukraine's president say Washington has provided Kyiv with long-range missiles that they've long sought. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, Ukraine says it used the weapons in attacks on Russian airfields. U.S. officials, speaking on condition of anonymity, say the Pentagon has given Ukraine a few dozen Attackums missiles that can travel up to 90 miles. Shortly afterward, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky went on social media to announce the missiles had been put to use. He said, quote, our agreements with President Biden are being implemented, and very accurately. Attackums have proven themselves. He was referring to airstrikes that Ukraine says damaged or destroyed Russian helicopters and other equipment at two air bases. Ukraine has long sought attackums. The Biden administration previously declined to provide them, fearing an escalation of the war. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. U.S. Census Bureau is looking into the possibility of allowing people to leave time capsule messages on forms for the next national headcount. Those messages would be revealed in the year 2102. NPR's Hansi Lo Wang has more. What would you say to future generations who come through forms for the 2030 census? That may end up becoming a new prompt from the Census Bureau. It says it got the idea from public suggestions. A similar time capsule option was included last year on Ireland's census form. In the U.S., federal law keeps the once-a-decade counts questionnaires sealed from the public for 72 years. That's why any 2030 census messages would stay private until the 22nd century. Other potential changes for the next census include text messages from the Bureau that try to encourage people to get counted in the official numbers used to divide up local representation and more than $2.8 trillion a year in federal money. Anzi Luong, NPR News. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow was up 13 points, the Nasdaq down 34, the S&P 500 up a fraction. This is NPR News. SpaceX is preparing to call on Congress to push the Federal Aviation Administration to streamline launch license issuing. The company is preparing to launch their Starship for a second time. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila has more. The Washington Post reports SpaceX Vice President for Build and Reliability William Gerstenmaier will tell Congress that private space development is outpacing government regulation. Specifically, he will urge lawmakers to issue launch licenses faster. SpaceX has a NASA contract for lunar missions that the company is falling behind on. Gerstenmaier says this should make SpaceX a regulatory priority for the FAA. SpaceX's Starship, which has been ready for launch for a few weeks, is still waiting for a launch license. The hearing will be at 2 p.m. Eastern Time Wednesday. For NPR News, I'm Gage Davila in McAllen, Texas. 
Retail sales jumped last month above expectations despite high interest rates. The Commerce Department says those sales rose seven-tenths of a percent in September. Spending at both restaurants and grocery stores grew faster than food prices, but spending at gas stations failed to keep pace with the jumping gasoline prices, suggesting that drivers paid more at the pump but drove off having bought less gasoline. Sales of furniture were flat, while sales of appliances were down, as would-be homebuyers held off amid rising mortgage rates. Crude oil prices ended the day higher today, gaining 1 percent, ending at $87.66 a barrel. I'm Janine Herbst, and you're listening to NPR News from Washington. In Boston, this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The leader of a local migrant support group says a recent meeting with Biden administration officials was productive. The attention from Washington comes as Governor Maura Healey says the state's shelter system will be full by the end of the month. WBR's Rob Lane has more. Jeffrey Thielman heads the International Institute of New England. He and other local leaders met with a team from the Department of Homeland Security last week. Thielman told WBUR's Radio Boston he's focused on helping migrants get work permits, and he was glad to hear the feds are making that a priority, too. They gave some specifics about how they've accelerated the program, and it's taking a shorter amount of time now to get uh, work authorization documents. So I, I felt good that they're on the problem and they're aware of it. Yesterday, Governor Healy said once the state family shelter system hits 7,500 households, Massachusetts will no longer guarantee shelter for eligible families. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. House Speaker Ron Mariano said today he will seek re-election next year. The Quincy Democrat served as Speaker since 2020. Another term would keep him in the seat through January 2027. A Winthrop police officer will not be criminally charged for shooting and killing a 28-year-old man two years ago. The Suffolk County DA's office says the officer behaved lawfully and acted in self-defense. The shooting took place after 28-year-old Nathan Allen killed two black people on the street in June 2021. DA Kevin Hayden says the officer's actions likely prevented more deaths. After the incident, investigators say they found white supremacist writings from Allen. State police are pushing for steeper penalties for drivers who don't move away from stopped emergency vehicles in the road. A proposed change on the state's move-over law would increase fines to $250. It would also allow for criminal charges if a first responder is injured by a driver. Patrick McNamara heads the State Police Association of Massachusetts. We're looking for a reasonable increase to the penalty and charge of the move-over law. Right now, it's a $100 citation. It doesn't do anything. And then what we're asking for is if you seriously hurt, if you injure one of our first responders because you failed to move over, that we're able to criminally charge on their misdemeanor. McNamara says first responders and their vehicles are hit regularly while performing traffic duty along roadways. In the forecast, a little bit of clearing overnight tonight. Some clouds around. Temperatures in the mid to upper 40s for a low. Tomorrow could make it to the low to mid 60s. Some sunshine, maybe an early afternoon shower. 55 degrees in Boston now at 6.09. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Tel Aviv, Israel. We begin this hour with reports of a catastrophic explosion at a Gaza hospital that threatens to be a major turning point in the Hamas-Israel war. 
The World Health Organization says many hundreds of people were killed in the explosion. The Israeli army says it was misfire from another Palestinian militant group in Gaza. It would be one of the deadliest single days in all five wars Hamas and Israel have fought in the last couple decades. President Biden is heading into this storm. He'll be here in Tel Aviv tomorrow. NPR's Daniel Estrin is sitting here with me now in Tel Aviv. And Daniel, update us on what happened at this hospital in Gaza. It took place um, on the Al-Ahli Hospital. This is a hospital in Gaza City. It's a Christian-affiliated hospital, Ari. It's where eyewitnesses told us that thousands of Palestinians have been sheltering uh, because hospitals have uh, long been considered off-limits for military targets in Gaza. People feel safe uh, sheltering there. But videos on social media uh, are showing a massive wall of fire rising up, uh, bodies strewn over the grass of the hospital grounds. An eyewitness spoke to Al Jazeera and said men, women, children were among the victims. Now, the Israeli military is saying that according to its intelligence sources, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group, that's a, it's another militant group, it's, it's a slightly smaller than Hamas, uh, operates in Gaza. They're saying that that group misfired a rocket barrage as it was firing toward Israel and, and that it hit the hospital. Uh, we do know from past wars there have been Palestinian rockets that have fallen short inside Gaza. Uh, but, you know, this very same hospital said it was struck by Israeli rocket fire just a few days ago. And even before this massive explosion at the hospital, bombings have been going on all day. I know you've been reporting on this with our colleagues in Gaza who are working under extreme conditions. Tell us about what you two have been discussing today. Yeah, and I've been speaking with our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, all day, and he told me what he saw in very graphic detail. His morning began at 4.30 a.m. He woke up in southern Gaza to the sound of an Israeli airstrike that reportedly killed a family. Uh, we woke up to the, uh, to the explosion, and after that, we couldn't uh, get back to sleep. At 8.30 a.m., Baba and his family fled the home they'd been sheltering in because a nearby high-rise got an Israeli military warning to escape ahead of a bombing. His family went to go stay with relatives, and he went out to report. We reached the first family house that got bombed. We were informed that at least seven people died here. Everything in the house was flattened to the ground. A lot of the neighbors were just like still under the shock. He says there is no help to dig out the rubble. He said the family must have kept chickens because there were a lot of feathers in the rubble. And, and he smelled burnt blood. Smelled. Just burnt blood. He visited a second bombed house and then a third. And he saw a woman in the street screaming, I need a ride to the hospital. She had an injured son there. So he drove her to the hospital. Her name is Um Ali Abu Jazar. <laughs> And she said, we were sitting at home normally, cooking. Suddenly the window broke on my head in an airstrike. My daughter, I found her face all bloodied. Under her room. All the kids were playing there. All the kids. They're all under the rubble. We don't know who's come out alive, who's come out dead, who is in body parts. Their blood is all black in every spot. The smell of death is everywhere. The smell of death is everywhere. So I was at the Al-Najjar hospital. So he arrives at the hospital and he finds another woman whose father was killed in one of those bombings. And he filmed her. You see her crouched on the floor. Her hand is on her father's body. And then suddenly... A huge explosion. An explosion. All of the hospital 
started to scream together, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. God is greatest, God is greatest. So he gets into the car to see what happened, and he's driving behind the ambulances. Huge dust. It's like a cloud of dust all over two blocks. We were driving without understanding where we're going. The only thing indicating to us where to go is the red color of the ambulance siren. We were following him. He drove guided by the red sirens. The first thing I saw, a man is driving and another man behind him holding two girls. And I swear, they were beheaded without a head. I get closer to find a woman with a full filling dust and sand clothing that you cannot even see her. She was like a ghost with all gray dust like covering her, her face, her skin, everything. Screaming in the, in the street, they called the children, they called the children. He says he saw the bodies of children being carried out. He saw a baby girl crushed. There is nothing of her bone structure totally crushed. Gaza health officials are saying that more than 100 people were killed in just those few bombings. And they took place in southern Gaza, which is the area that Israel ordered Palestinians to flee to for their own safety. There was one moment today when Anas Baba was in the field and rescue workers called him over to try to help them lift a large concrete block. We just held each other. Maybe the one under the rubble is still alive and we can save him. But underneath was just more rubble. Daniel is still here with us in Tel Aviv with that powerful reporting uh, about strikes in southern Gaza. And of course, we're looking at this explosion at this hospital in northern Gaza. I said at the beginning that this explosion at the hospital tonight could be a turning point in the war. Daniel, how so? Well, it's already disrupting President Biden's visit tomorrow. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has announced that he's going to boycott that meeting with Biden in protest of this explosion at the hospital. Uh, We're already seeing protests in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. There are reports of protests in Jordan near the Israeli embassy. Uh, Israel is calling on its own citizens to immediately leave Turkey due to threats. And then today we saw more cross-border fire between Lebanon and Israel. Uh, Israeli civilians have evacuated their homes on the border. Of course, all of this is Israelis are still identifying their dead, mourning, grieving, uh, burying their dead from the initial Hamas attacks. And so, Ari, uh, this is confirming the the fears that U.S. and Israeli officials have had all throughout this war, that this Hamas-Israel conflict could expand into a wider regional war. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin with me here in Tel Aviv, Israel, bringing us reporting from our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba. Daniel, thank you so much. You're welcome, Ari. Two weeks ago, the House voted to oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Well, today, they tried to vote to replace him with Ohio Republican Jim Jordan, but... No person having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, the Speaker has not been elected. That's right. After 20 Republicans voted for someone else, the House is in recess, and again, the chamber is frozen. Without a speaker, the House can't vote on aid to Israel or on anything else. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh was in the chamber and joins us now from the Capitol. Hi, Deirdre. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so are we seeing the same movie again? I mean, we saw Republicans in January take, what, 15 ballots to elect McCarthy as speaker? Is that Jordan's strategy to keep voting and voting and voting until he wins? 
So Elsa, they really hope there isn't a sequel to that movie. But yes, uh, Jordan is planning to continue to vote to try to get elected speaker. They decided to take the conversations behind closed doors. And Congressman Jordan came out and told reporters they're going to come back tomorrow morning and have a second vote. Jordan's allies did anticipate he could lose on the first ballot and knew it could take multiple rounds, but he has a lot of ground to make up. There are 221 Republicans, so he can only lose four if they're all on the floor and voting, and he lost 20 on that first ballot. Democrats all voted for Hakeem Jeffries. Even Republicans who voted for Jordan admitted that was a higher number than they expected for him to lose. Okay, so who were the 20 Republicans voting against Jordan? And do you think he can convince them to change their votes? He's working on that right now. He's trying to meet one-on-one with some of these. But the 20 were a mix of members who serve on the House Appropriations Committee, which handles spending bills, the House Armed Services Committee, who handles military issues. A lot of those members are concerned about Jim Jordan's record. I mean, he has opposed spending bills and been involved in standoffs that resulted in government shutdowns. He opposes more aid for Ukraine. Florida Republican Mario Diaz-Balart voted for Steve Scalise and told reporters after the vote he's still in the same place. He's a longtime member of the Appropriations Committee, and he was I spotted him on the floor huddling with some of his colleagues, clearly not supportive of, of Jordan. I mean, there's some others that, who are mad about the way that McCarthy was ousted and some voted for him. There was one Michigan Republican, John James, who voted for someone else. He told me he's worried about the needs of his district, things like a military base, infrastructure projects. But he said he was talking to Jordan. He said, we can work it out. Huh. Okay. well, are there any alternatives to Jordan right now? No. I mean, none of the people who actually got votes on the floor are even running for speaker. Many House Republicans tell me the same thing. They don't know anyone who can get 217 votes right now to get the gavel. Well, that's really unfortunate because one month from today, the federal government runs out of money. It could shut down. There's also a war in Israel. Can Congress address these issues without a speaker? No, Congress is paralyzed. I mean, lawmakers who support Jordan and people who oppose to him all agree this has gone on too long, two weeks. Constituents back home keep telling them the same thing. We just want the House to function. Over in the Senate today, they're talking about moving their own spending bills. They want to tie together aid to Ukraine and Israel. The White House is expected to send up a new request for emergency assistance, probably both for Ukraine and Israel. But even if they can move those bills in the Senate, and some of them have bipartisan support, none of these things can go anywhere until a House speaker is elected. That is NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Thank you so much, Deirdre. Thanks, Elsa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us this evening here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, retail sales can be misleading as an economic indicator because unlike other indicators, it isn't adjusted for inflation. Gasoline is a good example where gas station spending tends to go up with gas prices. That doesn't necessarily mean that there is a strong consumer just because that happens. So how should we interpret retail sales? Marketplace starts at 6.30. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners. 
and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. A minor gain for the Dow today, up just a small fraction of a percent. S&P closed little changed, and the Nasdaq lost about a quarter of a percent. Attention holiday shoppers, Snowport Holiday Market returns to the Boston Seaport next month. This will be the fifth year for the open-air event. It'll feature 120 small businesses from all across New England. There'll also be dining options, an annual holiday tree, and menorah lighting, and activities such as outdoor curling minus the ice. The market kicks off on November 10th. We'll run through the season. This is WBUR at 622. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar. With modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free and kids' menus available, too. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Boston Celtics take on the New York Knicks tonight at the Garden. It's Boston's final home game of the preseason. Tip-off tonight is at 7.30. Some clouds around tonight. Temperatures about 47. Tomorrow we could get some light rain for the first part of the afternoon. Otherwise, some sunshine. Temperatures in the low to mid-60s. 55 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy, from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. And the 58th Annual Head of the Charles Regatta, presented by BNY Mellon. See over 12,000 world-class rowers compete, October 20th to 22nd, free at Herder Park and Riverbend Park. Sponsored by Vineyard Vines and Senegenics. Visit hocr.org for more information. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Danny Rivera is a 22-year-old vocalist who's drawn to everything from R&B to soul and pop. But most Sundays, you'll find him singing in church. It's where his journey as an artist began. It's also where WBUR's Andrea Shea spoke with Rivera about his calling to reimagine songs by enslaved black people in America. Rivera is one of 10 local artists of color we're highlighting this week. If I can help somebody as I travel On a weekday morning, if Danny Rivera's voice floats above the crimson carpet and empty wooden pews at Holy Tabernacle Church in Dorchester. Part of my commitment to black culture is understanding the black church, which is the staple in the black community. It's where everything goes down, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful. Rivera calls himself a church hopper. He started singing at services as a kid. By age 11, Rivera directed his church's youth choir. He's inspired by his pastor and his parents, who were community organizers. My mother is black, African-American, and my father's from Puerto Rico. For most mixed kids, you're always torn between your culture. You never really feel like you have an identity. And I've always found a strong place and identity in church. Way in the 
singing took him outside church, including to the White House, where he performed with a choir for the Obamas. In high school at Boston Arts Academy, he studied classical music. But Rivera says the lack of black representation in that genre challenged his identity. He struggled to find his place and his voice. But when I heard spirituals, I was blown away. Spirituals are religious folk songs first sung by enslaved African people during worship in fields and as signal songs along the Underground Railroad. Choirs have popularized spirituals, but Rivera wanted to revive the historic songs through a solo lens that speaks to the Black experience today. For as much as it being beautiful, these are very bloody songs. I ain't got long to stay here, ain't got long. Rivera found two collaborators to help rearrange spirituals while studying at Longy School of Music. For his senior recital in 2022, they premiered the project at the African Meeting House in Boston. Rivera called it Songs of Free Men. Mm. Well, these were not free men. So whose songs are these? When did they become free? How were they freed through these songs? Rearranging the spirituals with Rivera hit home for organist Gavin Rushing. He's a student at Berklee College of Music and grew up in Georgia. As I play this music, I embody what the songs mean, but I also embody like my grandparents, my grandfather, who, you know, rest his soul, passed away in 2016. But he was born in a time where his father and him were still sharecroppers. They worked on somebody else's land. The musicians reworked the song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord, as their emotional response to George Floyd's murder in 2020. When we were working on this, one thing that we kept on saying was that, my Lord is blank. I was maybe 12, 11 when I was watching the riots happen with Michael Brown. My Lord was Michael Brown. I stopped wearing hoodies in middle school because of Trayvon Martin. And Trayvon is my Lord. So these are all feelings that come up, which is why we're so committed to bringing the spirituals back, because they not only share what has happened in the past, but it paints a very similar picture to the world that we live in today. The 
The spirituals keep Rivera grounded, he says, because all of the music he makes, from soul to gospel, jazz, even pop, can be traced back to these early cries for freedom. I feel the need to set the tone for my generation. It's not enough for you to come in and just sing music that makes you feel good. And if you really want to be a contributor to the sound, you've got to know the history and what makes us who we are. Rivera is diving even deeper into this history to expand Songs of Freeman into a performance he hopes to take on tour. He says he feels the restlessness of his ancestors and that it's his duty to make sure their music is heard. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. You can hear more of Danny Rivera's music and learn about the other artists we're featuring this week at WBUR.org. Tomorrow morning, the story of a young pianist and composer who took refuge from Afghanistan in 2021. He's now in Cambridge, raising awareness about the brutality of the Taliban. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at solargardensma.com.